بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We are at lesson number six tonight of the tafsir of the short surahs of the Quran course and um, We've covered so far the importance of contemplating the Qur'an, the ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the importance of pondering over his ayat and understanding the Qur'an. Um, we then moved on to Surah Al-Fatiha, speaking about the Basmala, speaking about Isti'adha, what to say before we recite, seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from shaitan, um, the virtues of the Basmala, the power of the Basmala. And then we moved on to Surah Al-Fatiha, speaking about the Hamd, Alhamdulillah, and the word Al-Rabb and Al-Alameen, and what that phrase, the powerful phrase means. And last week we covered Maliki Yawmiddin, the power of the phrase Maliki Yawmiddin, as well as of course covering Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim before that. We covered Maliki Yawmiddin last week, speaking about the ownership and the authority and the kingdom will belong to Allah Azza wa Jal alone on the day of Qiyamah, on the day of Hisab. The day of Jaza. Yawmuddin is the day of Jaza and Yawmul Hisab, the day of recompense, the day of uh, reckoning, and the day of judgment, and so forth. Alhamdulillah. So, we've been going through the surah in a fair amount of detail. As we said, because it's the most important surah, it's the most oft recited surah, and for this reason, we are trying to uh, maximize our benefit from the surah bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. So, tonight, inshallah, we will discuss the next ayah. Um, in the surah إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ And we will try to mention as much benefit or at least some of the most important benefits from this ayah بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى طيب, as we said, you know, Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim rather Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim, he wrote a book called مدارج Salikin, which is a voluminous work, a huge work that's based on this ayah that's based on this ayah alone. And he brought so many thousands and thousands of benefits just from this ayah. And so many points just on this entire book. That's today printed in volumes. You can find the book in seven, eight volumes on this ayah, subhanAllah. So that just shows, you know, we're going to speak about it for one hour, inshallah. But there's so much more that we can get just out of this verse. Allahu A'lam, that's how the, the, the classical and the great imams... That's the depth of their knowledge, you know, compared to our surface scratching, as we call it. Allahu A'lam, Allahu Musta'an, we ask Allah to aid us and assist us, and make us of those who understand His book, Amin Ya Rabbal Alameen. So, إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُوا وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ Translated as, you alone we worship, and you alone we ask for help. You alone do we worship, and you alone do we ask for, for help. This verse, firstly, was preceded by verses of praise for Allah. Why? And what is the wisdom in that? We started the surah. Let's start with the basmala. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah. Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The most compassionate, the most merciful. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All perfect praises for Allah, the one worthy of worship. The Lord of all that exists. Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The most merciful, the most compassionate. Well, the most compassionate, the most merciful. 
Maliki Yawmiddin, the owner or the king of the day of recompense. All of this, those ayat, those three ayat or four ayat, they are all a praise for Allah. They are praising Allah, showing us the greatness of Allah, the grandeur of Allah, the mercy of Allah, the rububiyya of Allah, the uluhiyya of Allah, the divinity of Allah in worship, the oneness of Allah in His rububiyya and His lordship, the, the mercy, the compassion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As we said, those names of Allah that we discussed, all names go back to at least one of four meanings. Jalal, Jamal, beauty, grandeur, greatness, beauty, Jamal, Rububiyah and Uluhiyah. All that was discussed in those four ayat or three ayat. Tayyib. So those ayat were all ayat of praise. And it leads up to this ayah. The question is why? And what is the wisdom in this? The answer is, what is this ayah speaking about? This ayah now speaks about ubudiyah. Worship or servitude, ibadah. You alone do we worship. And what we know is that worship or servitude is built on three arkan, three pillars. It's like Islam has five pillars. Worship, we say, has three pillars. And remember this now. Worship of Allah. Any act of worship, it should have three pillars, three arkan. When you speak about salah, for example, right, we have the arkan of salah. Certain parts of salah is known as a rukun of the salah. It cannot be left out. Without that, the salah is invalid. Right? The arkan of salah. And we've got the arkan of Islam. And we've got arkan of other acts of worship as well. Hajj, for example, and others. And we also have something known as shurut of salah, conditions of salah. We're going to go through tonight shurut of ibadah as well. Firstly, what are the pillars of ibadah? The pillars of ibadah are three. And when any of these three pillars are missing, then one's worship will be incomplete. There's something missing. It's incomplete. If all of them are missing, then that worship is non-existent shar'an. Shar'an. According to the sharia, according to the, you know, the demands of the sharia, it's as if that worship is non-existent, even though it was performed. Even though we, we did the act of worship, but because of the way this worship was done, void of all of its pillars, all of its arkan, it's as if that worship is non-existent shar'an, according to the sharia. What are these three pillars? These three pillars are love, hope, and fear. Al-hub, love. Hope, raja, and khawf, which is fear. Love, hope, and fear. Tayyib. Keep in mind the question that we asked, why is this verse preceded by verse of praise? Right? We are getting to that answer, bi'idnillah. Firstly, you must remember and know, the pillars of worship are three. Love, hope, and fear. Love, hope, and fear. The great Imam Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah. I mentioned this book earlier, just in the beginning I said, he wrote this book, Madariju Salikin. Here's one quote from this huge work. Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, he said in this book, Madarij, the heart on its journey towards Allah, Azza wa Jal, is like that of a bird. The heart on its journey to Allah is like that of a bird. Love is its head. Love is the head of the bird. And its two wings are hope and fear. 
Its two wings are hope and fear. So you've got the head of the bird, which is love, and you've got hope and fear. When the head is healthy, then the two wings will fly well. Meaning what? When our love for Allah is true, it's sincere. Why are we worshipping Allah? Out of hub, out of love. Not out of fear only. Not out of hope only. Firstly, it's out of love. And this is something already that's extremely deep and something that requires us to think about. Why do we worship Allah? Why do we give sadaqah? Why do we make salah? Why do we recite the Quran? Why do we make hajj? Why do we fast Ramadan? Why do we pay our zakah? Why do we do so many acts of worship? Is it out of It should be out of love for Allah. That we love Allah and therefore we love to worship Him. We love to wake up in the morning for Fajr, take wudu with cold water for example, and stand and pray. Get into the car, go to the masjid and pray. Out of Why do we do this? Because we love Allah. Why did the Sahaba fight in jihad? Because they loved Allah. That's point number one. They were happy to serve Allah because they loved Him. Just like out of love we serve our parents. Out of love we serve our spouse. Out of love we serve our kids. Because we love them. So we are only happy to serve them. Likewise, we should love Allah the most. Hub is actually an act of worship. It's, a, it's an ibadah itself. And all other worship should be built on this love. It should be built on this love for Allah. Why do we study? Why do we learn about the deen? Why do we learn about the Quran? All of this is ibadah. It should be first and foremost out of, out of love. This is the head of the bird. If it's healthy, if that love is truly there, the wings will fly. Hope and fear will come. Hope and fear will come. But hub, subhanallah, this is the most important. And how do we increase our love for Allah? That's a question. That's something to seriously again speak about. How do we increase our love for Allah? There's two things I will touch on. Number one is study Allah's names and attributes. Again, I make mention of this course, and I'm not trying to promote the course, but this is the answer. How do we get to love Allah? We need to learn who Allah is. We need to study Him, Him, Himself. Who is He? How do we study Allah? We have to study His names and attributes as it's mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Once we know who Allah is, who is He? What is He like? What does He do? What's His name? What's His attributes? What? Then we can love Him. And as Ibn al-Qayyim himself said, Whomsoever knows Allah by his names and attributes and his actions, he will love Allah unconditionally. He will love Allah under all circumstances. He will love him unconditionally. So this is it. This is where it starts. We need to go study Allah Azza wa And again, this was our previous course. I urge one and all to try and listen to those lectures purely to get to know Allah Azza wa better. And this will bring about love for Allah. As well as hope and fear. As well as hope and fear. Tayyib. Secondly, turn to the Quran. Kalamullah. Turn to the Quran. Kalamullah. Recite it daily. Read upon the meanings. Read upon the tafasir. Read up. Ponder. Reflect. Think about it. Contemplate over it. Get closer to the kalam of Allah. And you will get closer to Allah. And the love of Allah will increase in your heart. That's at least two things that we can try and do 
which will bring about the love of Allah in our hearts. We ask Allah to make us of those who truly love Him and of those whom He loves in return. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Tayyib, we move on. When the head is cut off, the bird will die. Subhanallah. When the head is cut off, when there's no love for Allah, there's, your heart is dead. The bird will die, meaning your heart and his journey to Allah is dead. Khalas. It's over. A person who does not love Allah cannot be a believer. A person who does not love Allah cannot be a believer. So when the heart is cut off, when the head is cut off rather, which is the love of Allah is cut off, the bird will die, your heart will be dead. No iman, nothing. Its journey to Allah will stop. will fail in this world, it will fail in the akhirah. We ask Allah to protect us. When either of the two wings is damaged, the bird becomes vulnerable to every hunter and predator. Ya salam. Deep words of Ibn Qayyim, and this is what he's known for. He is known for his deep, powerful writings. Um, when either of the two wings is damaged, with hope or fear is damaged, you become vulnerable. Your heart becomes vulnerable to every hunter and predator. Who are the hunters? Who are the predators? Shayateenul insi wal jinn. We know from Quran and Sunnah there is shayateen, there are devils from amongst the jinn, which is well known, and also from mankind. There are devils. Meaning, once your fear is one wing and hope is one wing, this keeps the bird flying, this keeps your heart flying to Allah. If any of these wings are damaged, you become vulnerable. You become an easy target. The shayateen can now come and he can manipulate you. Where these whisper to you and these whispers can get to you. Let's say, for example, you are not very fearful of Allah. That wing is damaged. So what happens, Shalteen? They come and they whisper, they give you ideas and they come with this and they, and you fall into fitna and you fall into sin and you fall into this because that wing is not strong enough. You become vulnerable to the Shalteen. It could be from amongst mankind as well. Bad friends, they influence you in a bad way because you, your wings are damaged. That hope and that fear in Allah is damaged. If your hope is damaged, you can lose hope in the mercy of Allah. And you give up your deen because you believe, I committed too much sin. I committed so much sin, Allah will not forgive me. Well, how can Allah forgive me? I'm such a major sinner. I've done this and I've done that and I've done this. Allah won't forgive me. That wing is damaged. The shaitan will tell you, Allah's not going to forgive you. It's too much that you did. It's too bad. You, you may tell by so many times, you're still committing sin. This is the whispers of shaitan. He will tell you after you sinned, you should be ashamed of your sin. You should... There's no way. Allah will never forgive you. For example, you may have a bad influence from a person, but your hope in Allah is to be strong. Knowing even after the worst of sin, Allah will forgive me. He is ghafoor rahim. Inna Allah yaghfiru dhunuba jami'a. Indeed, Allah forgives all sin. As Allah says in the Quran, so do not lose hope in the mercy of Allah. If Allah forgives all sins, He is the after forgiving the most merciful. Surah Zumar, Allah said this. So we should keep this in mind. And, and this is why knowledge is key. This is why studying and knowledge is key because knowledge is what keeps you going. Knowledge is your basis. Truly it's your basis. And it keeps those wings flapping, those wings flying and the heart strong. The head will be strong, that love, hope and fear will be strong the stronger your knowledge of Allah is, the stronger your knowledge of the Qur'an is, the stronger the knowledge of the Sunnah is. So knowledge is key, without a doubt. 
And these three things are extremely important that the Muslim stays balanced like this, between hope and fear, with love as its head, as Imam Al-Qaim so beautifully um, explained. Right? When the fear becomes too excessive, what happens? We become extreme. We become extreme. Uh, everything is fear. Everything becomes, you know, um, radical and radicalized. And that's why it's known that the Khawarij were people of khawf. The extremists, the rebels, those people of takfir, those people who used to excommunicate people from Islam and then kill them and make them blood halal. People of khawf, everything was fear, 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 fear. No hope. No hope, right? Everything was fear. On the other hand, you had certain groups that were known for, for hope, only hope, right? Like the Murja'a, for example. Everything was hope, everything, no fear. On the other hand, they became negligent and heedless. On the other hand, you had people, everything is love. Mahabba, 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 love, 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 like the Sufis. And they had no hope and no fear on the other hand, or, or not enough fear. The believer is between these three things. The Sunni, the true Sunni, the proper Ahl Sunnah Jama'ah, He's driven by his love to, for Allah. But he's guided and he's kept firm by his hope and fear. So he doesn't become too heedless. A person who's too heedless or he has not enough fear becomes too hopeful. Right? So what happens? He commits sin and sin and he doesn't even make tawbah. He doesn't really make, doesn't change. Why is he heedless? Ghafoor Rahim. Allah is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Allah forgives. Allah forgives all sin. Don't worry. Don't worry. Right? Fear is lacking, and that's why it's imbalanced. That's why there's an imbalance. Hence, the bird is now susceptible or vulnerable. Likewise, if he has too much fear and not enough hope, he may give up. He may think out of dread and fear, he may give up his iman. So Allah will not forgive him. You know, and, and he loses hope in the mercy of Allah. And that's, again, an imbalance. So we are between hope and fear. We are fearful of Allah, that Allah will not accept our deeds. Allah will punish us. At the same time, we don't lose hope. We keep turning back to Him. We keep turning back to Him. We believe He will forgive every sin. Subhanallah. And this is the, 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 the true way. Right? And all of this is, is guided by our love for Allah. So we abstain from sin out of love for Allah. Allah hates the sin, so we should hate the sin. Allah loves good, so we should do good. This is it. Love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most important thing, but that hope and fear must be there. The moment one wing is damaged, you become vulnerable. And to understand this parable, this, this, uh, this metaphor, this understanding, is of utmost importance. Wallah, it's of utmost importance. And we ask Allah Azza wa to grant us understanding. Ameen. Um, tayyib, let's move on. When we read and understand, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, it instills the love of Allah within our hearts. When we understand who is Allah, we praise all praise due to Allah. Perfect praise and thanks due to Allah. Who is Allah? One worthy of worship. Our nourisher. He's the Lord of all that exists. He's our Lord. He's our creator. He's in charge of our affairs. He manages our affairs. He's our nurturer. He's nurturing us right now. Does this not bring about love for Allah? Thinking about the greatness of Allah, the, the rububiyah of Allah, the uluhiyah of Allah. That he, he is our only creator, our only provider. He's the only one that's controlling our affairs, taking care of our needs, subtly showing us kindness and so forth. And at the same time, he's the only one that we worship, that's deserved of our worship. This should bring about love for Allah. Just this ayah alone should bring about pure love for Allah. 
The next ayah is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim instills hope into our hearts. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, we learn the mercy of Allah. It envelops everything. It envelops every single thing. His mercy uh, precedes his anger. We learn about the, 99, the hundred mercies of Allah. One for this dunya, 99 for the akhirah. Should we lose hope in the akhirah? We should believe that the part of that 99 will be so powerful, Allah will forgive us. Allah will enter us into Jannah. Brings us into hope. Allah is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. He will forgive our sins. He wants to forgive. He's the most merciful, the most compassionate. Entirely merciful. We should not lose hope. At the end, Maliki Yawmiddin. What does this instill? It instills fear into our hearts. We think of, he's the Malik, the owner. He's the king. We are part of his kingdom. That deserves fear. Right? We should not transgress. We should not break his laws. A king can punish those in his kingdom if they go against his laws. So this should bring about fear. Likewise, Yawm din should bring about fear. The day of resurrection, the day of Qiyamah, the day of regret, the day of standing, the day of recompense, the day of judgment, the day of hisab, reckoning. All of this should bring about fear. You think about all of the things that happen on Qiyamah, where a mother will abort a child. A mother and the child's love, there's no stronger love. A mother will abort a fetus and leave her, only worried about herself. On that day, people will be drowning in their sweat. Some people's sweat will be unto their ankles, some up to their knees, some up to their shoulders. Some people will be drowning in sweat. How does this happen? Only Allah knows. The sun will be brought within one mile. Subhanallah. So much things will happen. This should bring about fear. Imagine standing in front of Allah, the whole of creation. Nothing will be hidden from Allah. Nothing will be hidden from anybody. All secrets in the open. Imagine. Your book, you got to read your book. Imagine, whole of creation, everybody listening. Everything is exposed. It's a day of exposition. Subhanallah. Is this not enough to make us fear? This ayah brings about fear. That we need to keep ourselves in check. We should not become over heedless or overly hopeful. We should be people of fear. We fear Allah. We fear Allah will not accept our deeds, number one. The good that we did do is accepted. Only Allah knows. Subhanallah, we should be fearful. We should be fearful Allah will punish us for our sins. We should be fearful what's going to happen on Qiyamah. All of this ayah brings about fear. So these three ayat, love, hope and fear is mentioned in them. If we understand this ayat properly, it should bring about love, hope and fear. It should definitely bring about love, hope and fear. Hence, this is out of Allah's mercy and Allah's hikmah. That we first read the ayat of love, hope, and fear, right? Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen is love. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is hope and love. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim could be love and hope. Maliki Yawmiddin, fear. Then we read the ayah of worship. You alone do we worship. Because our worship is built upon those three pillars of love, hope, and fear. Our worship is built upon that three pillars of love, hope, and fear. Look at the hikmah of Allah. Look at the, the tartib of the surah, the sequence. Look at the order. Look at the depth of, of the wisdom that's in this ayah. This can only come from the most wise, the most knowledgeable. This is perfect kalam. This is why when Sahaba heard the Quran, they accepted Islam. This is why some of them said, this is sorcery. This is magic. This is, he's a poet. 
Some said this. Others said this is divine. Because they were masters of Arabic. Not like us, we're trying to translate and then, go, uh, you know, what does this word mean? This Subhanallah, they were masters. Hence they accepted Islam just upon hearing the miracle of the Quran. So our worship is built upon a solid foundation and is done in a way that's acceptable to Allah with love, hope and fear. So when we recite the ayah of worship, we first are reminded of love, hope and fear. That's a different benefit completely from just going through the, the literal translation of what does Hamd mean, what does Lillah mean, what does Rabb mean, what does Allah mean. It's a different dimension that this brings to the tafsir of Surah Fatiha. Amazing. Allah A'lam, Allah grant us understanding. So only, Allah only accepts these that are pure. As a hadith says, Inna Allah tayyibun la yaqbalu illa tayyiban. Indeed, Allah is pure and He only accepts that which is pure. So our deeds should be that which is pure. Right? It should be that which is um, built on love, hope and fear. That's from one angle. We will speak about the conditions of worship shortly, inshaAllah. Iyaka na'budu. Now let's analyze this. Iyaka na'budu. This phrase. Usually in Arabic, the verb should precede the object. You get a fi'l, which is the verb, and you got the maf'ul bihi, which is the object of the verb. Right? The thing that's done upon. Right? Usually the verb precedes the maf'ul bihi or the object. In this case, the object precedes the verb. Na'budu is the verb. Iyaka is the maf'ul bihi. Right? So in this case, the verb comes second and not first. It should normally in Arabic, it's the other way around, normally. But in this case, it's flipped around. What does this benefit? Is this just by the way or is the hikmah in this? The answer is, of course, there's hikmah in this. Sorry. There is definitely hikmah in this. What is the hikmah? What's the benefit? The benefit is that this brings about hasr and qasr, which means it brings about restriction, confinement, or limitation. It brings about um, restriction, confinement, or limitation. Meaning, now does not just mean it is you that we worship. Iyaka means you. Na'budu means we worship. So if you translate it, it's a better translation, it means it is you that we worship. Right? But the fact that these things are flipped around like this, it brings about the meaning of restriction and confinement, meaning we restrict and confine and limit our worship to you alone. That's how it should be understood. We restrict and limit and confine our worship to you alone. It's not just that we worship you. It's actually our worship is only specifically directed to you, constricted, uh, restricted to you alone. And that is a, a great benefit in that. There is a great benefit in that, without a doubt. Tayyib. Um, hence it confines the meaning of the object to the verb alone. So the meaning of the object is now confined to the verb alone. That's basically what we explained. So, to translate it, this is why we translate it as, you alone do we worship. This is why we translate it as, you alone do we worship, and not, we worship you and we seek your help. You alone do we worship, and you alone do we ask for help. This is why that alone is mentioned, based on, based on the sequence, and that's a benefit from the Arabic language. And again, this shows the depth of this, of the language, and the depth of the Quran. Subhanallah. The next point is, 
um, this verse points to the actualization of the meaning of La ilaha illallah. For its meaning is comprised of two matters, negation and affirmation. طيب, La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. The kalima of La ilaha illallah, our shahada, is based on two matters. It's two phrases. La ilaha and illallah is number two. Have negation and affirmation. And again, this is something extremely important to understand. Extremely important to understand. Um, and this verse is the actualization of, this, of the kalima, of the shahada. You alone do we worship. You alone, we restrict and confine our worship to you alone. This is what la ilaha illallah means. So negation and affirmation. The negation aspect contained in the words la ilaha means to remove every single object of worship apart from Allah in all the actions of worship. So when we say la ilaha, what does that mean? When we say la ilaha, what does that mean? La ilaha means there is no ilah. We do not worship any ilah. We negate every single deity, every single false deity and false god out there. So the translation of la ilaha illallah should not be there is no God but Allah. It should be there is no God or deity worthy of worship except Allah. Because there are other deities out there. There are other gods out there that are worshipped. But are they truly worshipped or should they de- are they deserved of worship? They are not deserved of worship. Right? Hence we translate la ilaha illallah as there is no deity or God worthy of worship. Except Allah, illallah. So la ilaha means we reject every deity that is worshipped. We do not believe in anything. We do not worship any god, any deity. Complete negation. Complete negation. We reject every god and deity out there. That's the first aspect. We cut out all gods and all deities. Right? We cut them out. And then we do affirmation, except for Allah. To single Allah out. Right? The Lord of the heavens and the earth alone. For all matters of worship. In the way that has been legislated by the Sharia. So we say, La ilaha, which firstly means, we disbelieve in everything. I disregard all the gods, all deities. I do not accept any deity. I reject every single god and every single deity. Illallah. Point number two is except for Allah. He's the only one that I worship. The only one that's worthy of worship. Understand? This is what the kalima means. So two aspects. La ilaha is negation of all deities. And then we do affirmation. We single Allah out and say except Allah. No deity worthy of worship except Allah. So no person, no prophet, no angel, no stone, no tree is worthy of worship. No angel, no jinn. No amulet is worthy of worship except for Allah. Illallah. That's what the kalima is broken down into and that's what it means. And it's very important to understand it like that. It's very important to understand it like that. Because some people worship Allah. But they also worship other deities along with Allah. And this is what we explained two weeks back when we spoke about uluhiyah and rububiyah. This is what we explained. Um, those who mix their iman with zulm, those who mix their belief with oppression, which is shirk, which, which is what we explained. 
Right? That we explain the ayah in Surah Yusuf that majority of people believe in Allah, but they are also mushrikeen. You understand? Because they worship other than Allah. Afwan. Um, so this is why it's important that we completely reject all false gods, all false deities, and we only worship Allah. So we do not worship Allah and Rasulullah So we do not say Ya Allah and Ya Rasulullah. We do not say Ya so and so and Ya Allah. When we make dua, it's only for Allah. It's only to Allah. Understand? We cut out all false deities. So for someone who says La ilaha illallah, for someone who um, worships Allah, but he also says Ya Rasulullah, help me. Ya Jilani, help me. Has he understood the kalima? He has not understood the kalima. Is he a muwahid? He's not a muwahid. He's not upon tawheed. He's upon shirk wa na'udhu billah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran a similar meaning to what we just explained. فَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِالطَّاهُوتِ One aspect. وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ Second aspect. فَقَدْ إِسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرَةِ الْوُذْقَى لَلْفِصَامَ لَهَا Whosoever renounces false gods. That's negation. He firstly renounces all false gods. I disbelieve in all of them. And he believes in Allah. And he believes in Allah. That's affirmation. He only affirms belief for Allah alone and worship for Allah alone. He has grasped the firmest unfailing handhold. Will never break. Will never break. This is the, the handhold of faith. Who is he? The one who rejects all false gods, all false deities, and he only believes in Allah. Right? Important to understand it like this. Because some people do not do kufr bi tahut. As the ayah says, yakfur bi tahut. Some people only affirm, we believe in Allah, we worship Allah, yes. But if you ask them, what's the ruling on me saying, Ya Rasulullah, help me. Or I go to the karamat or to the grave and I say, Oh righteous person, help me. Oh righteous person, uh, um, guide me. Oh righteous person, allow my wife to become pregnant. Oh righteous person, provide for me. What's the ruling on this? They say it's permissible. Well, they come with different uh, interpretations and different... This is worshipping other than Allah. So even though they do worship Allah as well, they do not do kufr bi They do not disbelieve in the false gods. Hence, they have not understood the kalima. They are not part of this ayah and they're not part of la ilaha illallah. Even though they are Muslimin, even though they make salah five times a day, they give sadaqah, they go and hajj, they fast Ramadan. The fact is they did not do kufr bi They did not renounce all false gods. They worship Allah, but they also worship other than Allah. They also make dua to other than Allah. They also sacrifice animals for other than Allah, for other than the pleasure of Allah, and so forth. So they have not understood this concept, Wallahu Musta'an. What is ibadah? What is the definition of worship? Firstly, linguistically, ibadah means to humble oneself. To humble oneself. Submission, subservience, subjugation, this is the word ibadah in the Arabic language. Okay, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he said, worship according to the shar, the, the sharia, is the highest degree of love with the highest degree of submission. We spoke about this importance of loving Allah and so forth and your worship must be driven by the love of Allah. And it's with the highest degree of submission. When we worship Allah, we humble ourselves. We submit unto Him. We subjugate ourselves unto Him. We are subservient unto Him with complete love. And this is an honor for us. This is an 
honor for us when we humble ourselves unto Allah. When you humble yourself to people, it's a, it's a humiliation. You beg people, you ask people for something, uh, it becomes a bit of humiliation. But when you humble yourself to Allah, that's honor, that's izzah. That is true honor. So our ibadah is with the highest degree of love, with the highest degree of submission unto Allah. When you belittle yourself in front of Allah, you put your, your, the, the most honorable part of your body is your face and your head, you put it on the lowest part of the ground for Allah. This is izzah, this is honor. With complete love, we belittle ourselves unto Allah. We beg Allah, we raise our hands and we beg Him. We speak to Him, we cry, we beg Him. This is izzah, because we're humiliating ourselves. But this is only done for Allah. Only for Allah. Understand? We do not humiliate ourselves to people. We don't put our head on the ground for anybody but Allah. We don't turn in dua and supplicate and beg and ask anybody but Allah. So this love and humiliation is for Allah alone. Not for any saint. Not for any person who has raised himself up to a certain degree. Has claimed he's a, he's a certain wali and so forth. This is not for them. It's not for anybody but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shaykhul Islam Tamiyah rahimahullah, he said that ibadah is ism jami'un. It's an ism, it's a worship, it's a comprehensive term for all that is beloved and pleasing to Allah from speech and action apparent to secret. So according to Ibn Taymiyyah, one of the definitions he's mentioned is it's a comprehensive term. Worship is a comprehensive term that includes all things that are beloved and pleasing to Allah. Whether it's your speech or your action. Like dhikr, speech, Quranic recitation, or action like your salah, your sadaqat, your hajj and so forth. Whether it's done in the open or whether it's done in secret. All that which pleasing, it's a general term. Other scholars of usul al-fiqh and so forth defined it as that which is instructed with shar'an. So whatever the Quran and Sunnah instructs us to do, what the sharia instructs us with, right? That is ibadah. Not what is customarily done and not what is determined logically. Right? That's not ibadah. So ibadah is not what is done customarily. Things we do according to our urf. What certain communities do according to their custom, that's not ibadah. That's not worship. That's urf. That's custom. Custom has its place. It's permissible as long as it does not go against the sharia. Custom is permissible. Customary actions and um, you know, gatherings and so forth, things that we do is permissible as long as it does not contradict the sharia. If it goes against the sharia, it's haram. It's haram. If your custom has certain elements of shirk, it's haram. If there's elements of haram, it's haram. If there's elements of other religions like Hinduism, haram. Otherwise, your custom is fine. The way you dress maybe is customarily, no problem. Alhamdulillah, jayid, good. The food you eat might be According to your custom, jayid, good, no problem. You understand? But at the moment that goes against the sharia, we cut it out. It's not ibadah though. It's not considered ibadah. That clothing you wear, that which is according to custom, or that food you eat, or whatever, practices for example. It's permissible as long as it's not done against the sharia, and secondly, it's not considered worship. It's not ibadah. Also what's determined logically. If you feel something is okay, or whatever you determine according to your aql, your logic, it's not considered ibadah. 
Because nobody can invent ibadah. Nobody can decide what's worship except Allah and the Messenger. Hence, it is what is instructed by Sharan. What we are instructed with according to the Sharia, the Quran and the Sunnah. That is ibadah. That's a more uh, accurate definition. What Ibn Taymiyyah said, Ibn al Qayyim said, is, is true, it's correct. That, those are also aspects of worship. But this is a bit more accurate in terms of the definition. All of them are correct and Allah knows best. So it is what is instructed by Shar'an according to the Sharia and not what is customarily done and not what is determined by logically. Worship can only be considered to be true worship when the way of performing it is taken from the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam seeking the face of Allah. These two conditions have to be present for the action to be considered worship and hence acceptable to Allah. We spoke in the beginning of this lesson about the arkan of worship, the three pillars of worship. This is the two conditions of worship. Worship has conditions before it's accepted. Every act of worship must fulfill two conditions. Every act of worship must fulfill two conditions. If one of the conditions are not fulfilled, the act of worship is rendered null and void. It's not accepted. What are the two conditions of worship? We, we mentioned it. It is, it is following the Prophet and seeking the face of Allah. What does seeking the face of Allah mean? You speak about that one firstly. It's your niyyah, it's your intention, it's your ikhlas. Right? Why are you doing this worship? Why are you attending a lesson? Why are you reciting Quran? Why are you giving sadaqah? Is it to impress people? Is it to acquire a woman? Is it to gain some type of reputation? You're giving sadaqah so people can say, MashaAllah, what a pious man, or what a uh, generous person, what a generous family. Hmm? If this is the case, this is what we call riyah. This is what we call riyah, which means showing off. And this is the opposite of ikhlas. This is the opposite of ikhlas. Such an act of worship is rejected straight away. The famous hadith, That actions are driven by its intentions. And each person will only get what he intended. Each person will only get what he intended. If your intention was purely for the sake of Allah, your reward will be with Allah. If your intention was for the dunya, anything in this dunya, whether it's reputation, whether it's showing off, whether it's trying to impress people, whether it's to acquire a certain person, like a woman, for example, whether it's for hijrah, whether it's for whatever. If it's not for the sake of Allah, your reward will only be for that which what, 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 what it was done for. It will not, your reward will not be with Allah. It will be rejected straight away. You understand? And this is something of utmost importance to speak about riyah and ikhlas. Subhanallah, there's no end to the importance of this lesson. Um, especially in today's time. Today we go for hajj, people are sitting and taking selfies. People are making tawaf and making selfies. This is ibadah. Why are we showing off in our ibadah? People give sadaqah, they take pictures of, of the sadaqah, they put it on Instagram or Snapchat and Facebook and so forth to show everybody that we're giving sadaqah. What, what's the intention? If this is the intention that is, is to show people, then we should know that that act of worship is null and void. In fact, hadith, sahih hadith, the Prophet وسلم, said the first people that will be thrown into Jahannam will be the scholar and be the qari of the Quran and be the, uh, the, the mujahid who died on the battlefield and be the one who gave sadaqah. So the man will be brought and will be said to him, 
Why did you give sadaqah in the dunya? He said, I did it for the sake of Allah. It will be said to him, Kadab, you have lied. You did it so people can say, what a generous man. So this man will be dragged on his face and thrown into Jahannam. The qari of the Qur'an will be brought. Why did you recite the Qur'an? Why did you beautify your voice with the Qur'an? He will, be, he will say, I did it for your sake, ya Allah. It will be said to him, Kadab, you've lied. He will be dragged on his face and thrown into Jahannam. The Mujahid who died on the battle, he died in jihad. The Mujahid, a, a martyr. Why did you give your life in the dunya? I gave it for your sake, ya Allah. It will be said to him, you have lied. You did it so people can say, what a brave man, what a courageous man. He will be dragged on his face and thrown into Jahannam. Likewise, the alim, why did you teach? Why did you study? It will be, he will say, for the sake of Allah. It will be said to him, you have lied. You did this so people can say, what a knowledgeable person. And for the qari, what a beautiful qari. They will be dragged on their face and thrown into Jahannam. Because there were people who showed off in worship. Subhanallah, this is riyah. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, it's, it's like a, it's, it will sneak up on you. Like a black ant on a black night on a black rock. It sneaks up on you. Your intention is so important to always take care of. Always take care of it. Especially when worshipping. So shaitan, remember shaitan is our enemy, he's out to get us. When we worship Allah, he's lost the first battle. His next battle is to corrupt that worship. His next job, should I say, his next uh, goal is to, is to corrupt that worship. So he tries to come and maybe instill some thoughts of Riyah or change your Niyah perhaps. Or, or he maybe shows you somebody that you want to impress or something. We need to be on guard at all times. Right? And, and, and understand that first condition is Tawheed and Ikhlas. It must be done for the sake of Allah and directly to Allah. Right? There can no be major shirk when you're worshipping other than Allah. It's of course rejected. And no minor shirk. This is minor shirk when you have riyah. Because it's the opposite of ikhlas. It's the opposite of tawheed as well. Um, so that's the first condition. Purity in your niyyah for the sake of Allah alone. Nobody else. The second condition for worship is it must be according to the sunnah. It must be the way that Rasulullah taught us to do that worship. You cannot worship Allah in any other way. This is why the Prophet was sent to teach us the religion, to teach us how to worship Allah. Right? And that's why he said in a number of ahadith, Whosoever invents anything into this religion, that which is not from it, his action will be rejected. Whosoever does an action that we have not commanded, then it must be rejected. Sahih Muslim. The other hadith in Bukhari, meaning any act of worship that we do, that's not from the Quran or the Sunnah, or it's not the way that the Prophet taught us to do that, that, that act of worship, that act of worship will be rejected, will not be accepted. It will not be accepted. This is something serious. It will not be accepted. And this is what we call a bid'ah. This is what we call a bid'ah, an innovation into the deen. Simple example, Mawlid, celebrating Mawlid. Did the Prophet celebrate Mawlid? No. Did the Sahaba celebrate Mawlid? No. The Tabi'een? No. The Atba'u Tabi'een? No. The famous Imams of Hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawud, Al-Tirmidhi, Nasai ibn Majah? No. The famous Imams of the Madahib, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Ashafi, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmad? None of them. Where did it come from? It came five, four, five hundred years later. The Shia were the first ones to celebrate the Mawlid. Is this a sunnah? Of course it's not a sunnah. How can a sunnah come 400 years later, 500 years later? 
Hence, the conclusion is very simple that the Mawlid is a bid'ah. And whoever celebrates the Mawlid, we say, will have no reward and his action is rejected according to the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's as simple as that. It's an act, it's a condition for your worship to be accepted that it's from the sunnah. If it's not from the sunnah, throw it out. Move away from it and only do that which is authentically narrated in the sunnah. Understand? This is very important to understand because if we are worshipping Allah, we could be wasting our time. As the Quran says, Surah Kahf, Allah says, Say to them, shall I not inform you? Shall I inform you of those who are the biggest losers when it comes to their a'mal, their deeds? Who are the biggest losers? The Quran says, there are those who strive in their worship. Strive in their worship. There are those who are Their efforts have been misguided. They are astray in their efforts. But they think what they are doing is good. They think what they are doing is good. So what happens is, they are doing deeds and deeds and deeds. This type of dhikr and a dancing dhikr and a jumping dhikr and this type of dua which is not legislated and this type of gathering which is not legislated and this type of subhanallah. They think what they are doing is good and they continue doing it. But the Quran says they are the biggest losers. Why? Because their actions are not accepted. They are astray in the way that they are, their efforts, the way they are worshipping Allah. That's the ayah we need to really reflect over. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah has created life and death so that He can test you to see who is best indeed. Those who do the best of deeds. What is the best of deeds? Fudayr ibn Iyad, he commented and he said, Rahimahullah, the one who is sincere in his action and correct in it. Two things, sincerity and correction. It must be proper. We spoke about sincerity and we are now speaking about what's correct. The action, if it is sincere but not correct, it is not accepted. If it is correct but not sincere, it's not accepted. It is only accepted when it is both sincere and correct. It is sincere when it is for the sake of Allah. We spoke about that, ikhlas and the niyyah, and it is correct when it is done according to the sunnah. Remember this, ikhwan, my brother and sister in Islam, remember this. It will only be accepted when it's sincere for the sake of Allah and when it is done according to the sunnah. If it's not from the sunnah, if it's not from the sunnah, don't do it. If it's not from the sunnah, don't do it. The Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba, did not celebrate maulids. They did not celebrate big nights. They did not do many things that we are customarily accustomed to doing. And as we said in the definition of worship, worship is not what is customarily done. It's not what is customarily done. It must be done from what's mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Remember this. We cannot worship Allah according to our desires, according to what we feel, makes us feel good. Worship is not about feeling good. Worship it must be legislated. We are following a sharia, a, a, a set of laws. It comes from the Quran and the Sunnah, not from our minds. From our logic, not from our feelings, not from emotions, not from desires, and not from custom either. Not from and we are not trying to belittle anybody. This is the facts, as the Quran and Sunnah state these facts in great detail. There are so many ahadith which you, that we can mention. One day, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was uh, called by Abu, uh, by Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Two sahaba, 
The one Sahabi comes to the other and says, Abu Mas'ud, have you seen what's happening in Masjid al-Nabawi? He said, no, what's happening? He said, come and see. He explained to him and he said, what did you do about it? He said, I'm coming to you because you're more knowledgeable. They go to this gathering in Masjid al-Nabawi. What's happening in Masjid al-Nabawi? This is after the death of the Prophet There's a group of people, they are not Sahaba, they are sitting and they are making dhikr. The one in the middle throws a stone and he says, Subhanallah, everybody says, Subhanallah. He says, another one, he says, Alhamdulillah, everybody says, Alhamdulillah. Another stone, Allahu Akbar, everybody says, Allahu Akbar. Abdullah bin Mas'ud says to them, what are you doing? They say, Ya Abdullah, uh, Abu Abdurrahman, his kunya is Abdul Abdurrahman, he says, we only intend what's good. And he said, how many people intend good, but they don't reach what they intended. Showing again this point here, that your intention may be good. But if the actions are according to the sunnah, it's not valuable, it's not good enough, it's not accepted. Both conditions must be met. And then he said to them, the, the message of Allah just passed away recently. His clothing is still being worn. His family is still alive. His companions are still alive. And you people have already left the sunnah. You people are already found, you found a path that's supposedly more guided and more righteous than the Prophet than the Sahaba. So he rebuked them for making dhikr in a gathering, in a group. He rebuked them for you. Perhaps it was for the stones or if it was for the group dhikr. He rebuked them for this and he refuted them for this. And it was said that those people were later on seen in the battle of Nahrawan with Khawarij who killed Ali radiallahu anhu. Showing us again that bid'ah also leads to other bid'ahs. Right? It doesn't just stop there. One bid'ah leads to another until people end up in major misguidance. And that's why the Prophet said the most evil of affairs are the newly invented affairs. And, the, uh, and, and every newly invented affair in the deen is what we call a bid'ah. Every newly invented affair in the religion. Because we're not talking about dunyawi things. Cars and sitting at desks and cameras. and that's, Those are dunyawi things. We're speaking about deeny issues. The hadith clearly mentions deeny. Whoever innovates into the deen. Not into the dunya, to the deen. And all bid'ah is misguidance, and all misguidance is in the hellfire. Prophet was severe on bid'ah. We spoke about intercession last week. The hadith says, people will come for intercession, the angels will chase them away. The Prophet say, but these are Muslims, I can see they're part of the ummah. The angel will say to the Prophet you don't know ma ahdathu ba'daka. You don't know what they invented and innovated after you. Meaning after you passed away, they became innovators. People of bid'ah and, and, and false ibadah that's not part of the sunnah. The prophets will say to them, suhqan, suhqan, get away, get away. He will chase them away, they will not get shafa'ah because of bid'ah. Wallahu al-musta'ad, it's a majorly serious issue that m- most people take for granted. Most people take it for granted. We will highlight it because it's important. Um, the proof of what Fudayl ibn Iyad said lies in the verse also in Surah Kahf فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ فَلِعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَلَا يُشْرِكْ بِعِبَادَةِ رَبِّهِ أَحَدًا The two points are mentioned here. Whoever hopes for the meeting with their Lord, let them do good deeds, عَمَلًا صَالِحًا Proper righteous deeds. Not any amal, صَالِحًا that must be pure and good and associate none in worship. Those are the two points that are mentioned. Righteous deeds with no shirk. So tawheed and righteous deeds meaning deeds according to the sunnah. The main lesson derived from this part of the verse is that of Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, meaning that worship is for Allah and Allah alone. This is emphasized in the surah. Worship in the surah is emphasized and you can see through the tafsir uh, that we are mentioning. A mushrik who recited this verse, is he truthful or lying? Surely he's lying. 
A person worships other than Allah and he recites Iyaka na'budu. Is he truthful in his recitation? He's lying in his recitation. He lies upon Allah and upon himself by thinking that he's upon Tawheed or that he's a true believer when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Unzur kayfa kadabu ala anfusim. See how they will lie about themselves. And how those gods that they fabricated will fail them. They are lying upon themselves, Allah says in the Quran. Because they are mushrikeen. They think they are upon Tawheed. They think they are worshipping Allah. Their name is Muhammad and Abdullah and Shaykh so and so and so and so. But because they don't worship Allah alone, they are lying upon themselves and lying upon Allah. He recites the verse, but yet he calls upon the dead. Again, this is rampant in the Ummah today. People worship other than Allah. They do tawaf around graves. They do sajda and ruku' towards graves. Go on YouTube and see these things happening. In our community, in, across the globe it's happening. Sacrificing sheep and chickens and others for other than Allah. People are busy with black magic, sihir, sacrificing chickens in the name of the jinn, in the name of the devil, in the name of this. It's happening. Wallahi, it's happening. We know of cases in this community where it's happening. It's not made up. It's not fables. It's not... Uh, it's happening. They put their trust in other than Allah and so forth. Right? This is the biggest calamity. There's nothing worse than this. This is worse than zina and killing and riba and everything, everything else. He recites, listens and understands the Quran as well as the kalima of la ilaha illallah but can't comprehend the most basic and important part of the Quran, the fatiha and the kalima. Ya salam. Born Muslim, grows up Muslim, dies Muslim. What type of Muslim was he? How, how is it possible? We recite, We say, La ilaha illallah, but we say, Ya so-and-so help me. Ya Jilani help me. Ya Badawi help me. Ya Ghawthul A'zam. Oh, the greatest helper. Who is the greatest helper? They say, it's Jilani. Wallahi, this is what they believe. La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. Worship is for Allah and done to Allah alone. Wa iyyaka nasta'een. The next part of the ayah says, and you alone do we ask for help. Nasta'in is a type of, is basically the meaning of isti'ana. Isti'ana means to seek help or assistance. Talabul aun, which means to seek help or assistance. Isti'ana. It's a type of, it's an act of worship, and it's a, it's a specific type of dua when we seek help or assistance. Isti'ana. Okay? Nasta'in comes from isti'ana, which means to seek help or assistance or aid. So this, this verse proves that help should be sought from Allah alone. This verse proves that help and aid and assistance should be sought from Allah alone. وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ means and you alone do we ask for help. The muwahid who worships Allah alone can only achieve this tawheed by the help and assistance of Allah. The muwahid means the one who worships Allah alone. He can only achieve this, this righteousness, this guidance, this tawheed by the help and assistance of Allah. When we say, It's connected. يعني, we worship you alone, and we seek your assistance alone. Meaning, it's only through your help and assistance. We need your help and assistance so that we can worship you alone, so that we can be guided. Without the help, how can we be guided? You alone do we worship, it means, and you alone do we ask for help in all of our affairs, especially when it comes to Tawheed and worshiping you alone. Hence the Muwahid should always keep in mind that he is in complete need of Allah in keeping him steadfast upon Tawheed. When we decide this, we should understand we are in dire need of Allah at every moment. We are never ever free from, from the need of Allah, not for the blinking of an eye. So when we say you alone do we worship, 
and you alone do we ask for help, we should remember that we are in dire need of the help of Allah. Especially when it comes to guidance and being steadfast and staying steadfast upon Tawheed and upon the Sunnah and so forth. When he recites this verse, all self-amazement should leave him and self-trust should leave him. When you recite, you should remember again, I cannot benefit myself. I cannot assist myself. I cannot help myself. I, without the help of Allah. I should make effort. I should strive, do my best. But ultimately, I need the help of Allah at all times. I am in complete need of Allah. Hence, all that self-trust, self-amazement uh, should be gone. We realize we just need to turn to Allah Azza wa Jal. It's, it's all about His help. If there's no help from Allah, we are doomed. If the help of Allah comes, we are saved. He should turn to Allah acknowledging His complete need of Him. This ayah should bring about that without a doubt. Tayyib. Um, so ultimately, we should remember that we need to turn to Allah for every, every single thing, that, every task, every matter. Whether it's a matter of deen, guidance, whether it's a matter of dunya, we need the help of Allah. If Allah's help does not come, we are destroyed and doomed. If it comes, we are victorious and we are saved. Tayyib. Um, so ultimately, no matter what we are doing, seek the help of Allah. If it's a simple task, seek the help of Allah. Right? Does this mean though, that we can never seek the help of creation? Does this mean that? The answer is, that it's permissible on three conditions. To seek the help of others, it's permissible with three conditions. The first condition is, this person must be alive. If you are seeking help from the dead, it's an act of shirk. It's an act of shirk. Right? It's an act of shirk to seek help from the dead. The person must be alive. So to say, help me, madad, 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 the word madad means help me, support me, madad. And you find this common, especially in the subcontinent uh, people and even some of the other uh, places in the, in, in, the, in the Eastern world, in the, in the Arab world, you find this as well. That people, they say madad, ya so and so, ya madad, ya Rasulullah, madad, which means help me, assist me, aid me. Right? This is an act of shirk because you are seeking help from other than Allah. It goes against Iyakanasta'in. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Dalikum Allah Rabbukum lahul mulk, waladina tadi'una min dunihi, ma'am likuna min kitumir, in tadi'uhum la yas ma'u du'aakum, walaw sami'u mastajabu lakum, wayom al kiyamati yak furuna bishirkikum, walayuna biuka mitlu khabir. Allah says, That is Allah your Lord, to Him belongs sovereignty. And those whom you invoke other than Him, Right? Do not possess as much as the membrane of a date seed. The date seed, the pit around it, you'll see the see-through whitish, grayish membrane. That is kitumir. They do not even possess that. Never mind the date itself. They don't even possess that little fa that see-through membrane which is like worthless. If you call upon them, number one, Allah says, they cannot hear your du'as. They cannot hear you. If you call upon the dead, Allah says, they cannot hear you. And if they were to hear you, they could not respond to you. So let's say for argument's sake, you say they can hear. Allah then says, if they could hear, they cannot hear. But if they could hear, they will not be able to respond to you. They, can, they could not respond to you. And on the day of Qiyamah, they will disown your worship of them. Your shirk. Allah calls this shirk. They will disown your shirk. And no one can inform you, O Prophet, like the all-knowledgeable, like Allah. Right? Allah calls it shirk. In another ayah, Allah says, 
And who could be more astray than those who call upon others besides Allah? Subhanallah, why would you make dua to other than Allah? Why would a Muslim who understands La ilaha illallah, who knows Allah, possibly say Ya Rasulullah, or Ya Jibreel, or Ya Abdul Qadir Jilani, or Ya Badawi, or Ya uh, Rifa'i, or Ya so and so? Surely these people don't know who Allah is. Surely they don't understand Allah. Surely they don't know the Quran and they don't know the Sunnah. They are the most ignorant of people, and then Allah says they are the most astray. Who can be more astray? Meaning there's no one more astray than them. Even if he's a sheikh, even if he's a Muslim, supposedly, even if he makes salah, has gone for hajj every year, there's no one more misguided than him. Um, who can be more astray than those who call upon others besides Allah? Others that cannot respond to them until the day of Qiyamah. Allah says, and are even unaware. They are ghafilun. They don't even know about your calls. Unaware. They don't even know about it. وَإِذَا حُشِرَ nas And when such people will be gathered together, resurrected together, Those gods that they call upon, whether it's people, whether it's jinn, whether it's angels, whether it's idols, whether it's trees, those gods that they worshipped will be their enemies. They will reject and disown their worship. They will turn away. They will be their number one and say, I have nothing to do with this person. If it's the Prophet you worshipped, he will be the one who disowns you. If it's Isa you worship, he will be the one who disowns you. If it's an angel you worship, he will disown you. And he will say, I did not know of his worship. I have nothing to do with him. He is astray and he's subhanallah. And there are many ayat like this. Where Allah speaks about the severity and the seriousness of shirk. Right? If you call upon a dead person, you ask a dead person for help, you have fallen into major shirk. They cannot hear you. If they were to hear you, they cannot answer you and they will reject your shirk. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran. Number two is they must be present. A person must be alive, was number one, cannot be dead. And they must be present. They cannot be in another country without any communication. So for example, I'm sitting in, in South Africa. I cannot just sit here and say, um, oh, the Imam of Makkah's haram, whoever I'm referring to, can you please help us? Or can you please assist us? Or can you please um, answer this question for me? Okay. It makes no sense, yes, logically. And therefore it's an act of shirk. Because now you are making as if this person in another country, in another place, in another distant location, is like Allah who can hear everything, who can understand everything, who can uh, answer you from anywhere. You have given this person Allah's qualities, which is undoubtedly shirk. And again, if you think this makes no sense and this doesn't happen, we have seen this in front of us. Where a person sits here and he says to his sheikh in Cyprus to help him. And he says that the sheikh can hear him. The sheikh can assist him. The sheikh can benefit him. He believes this. He believes it. And other people believe this. I've seen a person call on a sheikh in Yemen. From Cape Town. Not via the phone. Not picking up. Not via the internet. Just saying, yeah, so and so in Yemen, help me. Normal Muslims that we meet every day in the masjid, this is what they do. And this is undoubtedly major shirk. And thirdly, they must be able to help. Meaning, the help that is sought from them must be issues that they are able to help with. So if you ask someone for help, it must be, can you pass me something? Can you lend me some money? Can you assist me? In, can you push my car with me? Can you uh, give me a lift somewhere? Can you 
things that they are able to help you with. Not things that are only in the capabilities of Allah. Like, oh, so and so, can you help? Can you make it rain? Can you um, guide me in terms of hidayah? You know? Can you teach me something? Permissible. Can you make dua for me? Permissible. Because in his capabilities. But the moment you say, cause Allah to forgive me. Or, you know, it's haram. If you say, ask Allah to forgive me, permissible because it's dua. But this is the thing. Guide our hearts. Grant us victory over the disbelieving people. Give us rain. This is shirk. Because only those things belong to Allah alone. If you believe that person can do that, you have raised him to the level of Allah and this is major shirk. So when you ask people for help, it's only permissible if it's on those things which in those people have the abilities to help. It must be within human capability. The moment it goes beyond that, you have fallen into shirk if you truly believe that they can assist you. If you truly believe that, they can assist you. As Taymiyyah said, the sunnah is that the living person may be asked to offer dua. Yes, you can ask somebody to make dua for you. Just as he may be asked for anything else that he is able to do. As for created beings who are absent or dead, they are not to be asked for anything. Right? This is wildly clear. To the same person, the person who is upon fitrah, natural inclination, upon tawheed, these things are very much clear to him. We do not ask the dead for anything. We do not ask any other creature like the jinn or the angels for anything. Even though the angels are alive, the angels are present. We know there's angels on your shoulder. Does it mean you can ask him for help? Ask him for guidance? Ask him for make dua to him? You cannot do this. It becomes shirk. This is for Allah Azza wa Jal alone. You're allowed to ask another person to help you. If that person's alive, he's present and he's capable of helping you. It's not a matter that's in the hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. This is what the ulama have mentioned. And this again, it also makes logical sense. It's proven from the Quran and Sunnah. And also makes logical sense. Walhamdulillah. So if the above three conditions are met, it's permissible to ask others for help. And it's not considered ibadah. It's not considered worship. Right? To end off, it's, we say it's allowed because Allah has allowed it. Allah did not say you're not allowed to ask others to help. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَإِنْ إِسْتَنْصَرُوكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ فَعَلَيْكُمُ النَّصْرِ If they seek your help, right? in this case against persecution, in deen, in faith, it's your obligation to help them. Help one another. Allah says, وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى Cooperate, help one, with one, help one another with goodness and righteousness. So it's permissible to help each other and to ask each other for help when there's need for that. But with those three conditions, don't ask the dead to help you. This is not permissible, was never done by the Prophet with the Sahaba and become shirk. When the Prophet died, the Sahaba did not go to his grave and ask him to help them. Never was done. The famous hadith of Umar ibn Khattab, when, it, when there was a drought, he would go to the Prophet and say, Ya Rasulullah, the drought make dua for rain. So the Prophet would make dua for rain and it would come in rain. After the death of the Prophet, he would go to the cousin of the Prophet or the uncle Abbas and he would say to him you are the uncle of the Messenger of Allah you make dua for rain he would raise his hands and make dua for rain the point here is Umar did not go to the grave and say Ya Rasulullah when you were alive we asked you and now when you are dead we ask you no, he, he went to someone else because Umar knew I cannot go to the, the qabr, to the dead person even though it's the best of all people Rasulullah no he went to the, the uncle because he knew, you have to ask someone who's alive. 
This is well known and this is very much clear. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So this ayah, is Tawheed 101. It's all about strengthening our Tawheed in Allah, especially in worship. Especially in worship. All those acts of worship is for Allah alone. Your dua specifically to Allah directly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِ عَنِي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ وَجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّعِي ذَا دَعَنِي فَلَيَسْتَجِيبُ لِي وَلُؤْمِنُ بِي لَعَلَمْ يَرْشُدُونَ When my slave asks you about me, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, inform him that I am near. I am the one who answers his call. When he calls, when he makes dua, he supplicates, I am the one who answers. So, obey me. Answer me and you'll be guided. Basically what the ayah says. This is so clear what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. So clear, I'm nearby, I answer your call. Don't ask anybody else. Don't make dua to anyone else. Not for any anything. That becomes an act of major shirk. Wallahu musta'an. Ad-du'a huwa al-ibadah. The Prophet said dua is the essence of worship. It is the true essence of worship. The moment you direct that dua to someone else, you have worshipped that thing, that person, you have fallen into major shirk, which takes you out the fold of Islam. The Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, Inna Allah la yaghfira yushirka bih. Indeed, Allah does not forgive the sin of shirk. He does not forgive the mushrikis. No forgiveness for them in the akhirah. In this dunya, the door of tawbah is open until death. But in the akhirah, no forgiveness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, إِنَّهُ مَا يُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَنَّةِ Whomsoever commits shirk with Allah, Allah has forbidden paradise for them. There is no jannah for them. They will be in the hellfire forever and ever and ever. This is the seriousness of the sin that we are speaking about. And this is why it's so stressed in throughout the Quran. Throughout the Quran. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said, Al-Quran kulluhu tawheed. The entire Quran is tawheed from start to finish. The entire Quran, from start to finish, the first ayah to the last, is about tawheed. Is about tawheed. Instilling the oneness of Allah in his rububiyah, his lordship, in his uluhiyah, his worship, and his names and attributes. And this is why tawheed is so important. This is why tawheed is so powerful. And it is the greatest lesson. It is the greatest of all obligations. For 13 years in Mecca, the Prophet propagated Tawheed only. Only at the end of that reign came Salah. It came Hijrah. Then in Medina, for 10 years came the rest of the Wajibat. Fasting and Zakah and all the other things. The main lesson was fixing up the belief system. The lesson of Tawheed, Tawheed, Tawheed. Because to this day, to this day the Muslims haven't understood it. To this day, we have Muslims who worship other than Allah. Some worship living creatures, living people. Some worship the dead. Some worship the messengers. Some worship the jinn. Some worship all types of things. Muslimin, born and bred Muslim, in the masjid five times a day, still, they are not worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal alone. And this is why we are highlighting and stressing this point, because it is of utmost importance, and it is the main lesson of the Fatiha, and the main lesson of the entire Quran. The, the message of worshipping and turning to Allah Azza wa Jal alone. Alone. Can you ask others for help? We said yes. On those simple issues. But they can help. They're alive and they're present. It's permissible. You phone somebody. It's permissible. There's a direct communication. But you're not telepathically linking with him. As I said, the brother said, sitting here and he speaks to Sheikh in Turkey. No phones. No nothing. This, this you're making as if the shaykh is like Allah, he can hear everything. He can do anything. Subhanallah. If this is not shirk, there's no such thing as shirk. If this is not shirk, there's no such thing as shirk. So we ask Allah Azza wa to guide us. 
and to keep us firm upon his tawheed, to make us true muwahideen, to those who will enter Jannah without hisab and out, without adab. Right? We ask Allah Azza wa again to make us of those who understand his book, understand the Fatiha especially, and of those who act upon the, the lessons within the surah and within the rest of the Quran, to make us of Ahlul Quran, Ahlullah wa khasatuh, the people of Allah and those who are closest to him. Amin Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashadu ala ilahi la tastaghfiruka wa atubu lak. Bi idhnillah, next week we will finish the Fatiha. Insha'Allah ta'ala. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.